I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. My name is Elon Jacobson, and dealmaking is in my DNA. I'll be here each week talking with entrepreneurs and dealmakers about the crazy obstacles they've faced along their paths and whether it's nature or nurture driving their success. Expect the unexpected on a dealmaker's DNA. All right. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of a Dealmaker's DNA. I have a, uh, a really fun one, someone who talks just about as much as I do, uh, Solon. Solon, thank you very much for, for joining me. Solon is, 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 is very um, integrated with the Fresh Founders. He's the founder, chief impact officer at MindBridge AI. Uh, he was official member of Forbes Finance Council. He's also been a principal owner at Squanto way back in the day, uh, co-founder at Neocase and many other things. I know that uh, Solon's also an avid angel investor and uh, an all-around badass. So Solon, thank, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. It was a pleasure to see you. Uh, I think it's the first time being introduced as a badass. Uh, I think. <laughs> You'll take it, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Solon, for those that don't know you, you know, just, just give, a, give them a, a Coles notes of, uh, of your career. We're going to go through a lot more detail, but what do you typically do what do you love doing? What does your days look like? Because uh, I know that you, uh, you always have a million things on the go. Well, I think that summarizes it pretty well. Is I work based, and I know it sounds very, I wouldn't say extra confident, but I do work best with a lot of things on the go on the tight deadline. Like in France, there's that drink called Orangina, which is like an orange stain, bubbly, like a, like, a, like a pop with orange. And they had a whole campaign in the 80s around you know, you have to shake it. It's best when you shake it before you drink it and it gets the bubbles going and the flavor and things. And it's the same thing. You have to shake me up to get the best flavor out of it. Like if it's, if it's like, I think if you, if you want to see me cranky or, or bored, it's just to be in a regular eight to nine to five monotone repetitive thing. And which is very ironic because I ended up starting a company in the space of audit, which is super repetitive. <laughs> um, but, but, uh, but then you replaced yourself as CEO pretty quickly, right? So oh, yeah, you, you, you knew that you weren't the guy. Yeah. So which is, I mean, so I didn't know, and this is the interesting part, is I didn't know necessarily, but I knew that operationally driven items will drag me down. Like, I, don't, I couldn't put a word on it. I couldn't explain it. But I had a feeling, a gut, and an instinct that that's what, this was probably not the best thing I could do. Let's take a step way, way back. I mean, you know, I've gotten to know you as a person and I'm, I'm fascinated by the way you look at the world. I mean, you have a big picture view, but very tactical in nature. I mean, you have, you have this very dichotomous yeah. uh, personality, but like, how did that all get started? Talk to me about your childhood. You know, were you always a rambunctious child? Who were, your, who were your parents? How did they harness that? Just give me an idea of what that looked like. You know, that, that's very funny. So my childhood was rocky. I mean, my childhood was already worldly, I can say. My father, Frenchman, I would qualify him, ethical, legal, narcos type of guy, you know, with a moustache, Frenchman, that didn't want a bit of a revolutionary behavior, rebellious. You know, in the 60s, there was that whole thing of like revolt in the streets of Paris and occupation of universities. Him and his two brothers, the Angel brothers, were quite known to be shit disturbers. And, you know, he would be smuggling guns through the barricades from one party to another. And they all left and, you know, they did hijacking to India. My father left to Brazil, for Brazil for 10 years. Was like, a, you know, he had 10 lives and 10 jobs. He was a restaurant manager. He was, you know, us broker. He was, at some point in his life, homeless. 
like just really like I would say like just free spirited character that came from a very bourgeois Parisian community that decided not to live that lifestyle. His brother was the same way. He ended up being in the hills of California and one of the first ones to use solar panels and going off the grid as like the dream of many hippies, if you want. And then the third brother is living in Asia doing as a painter, you know, like the starving artist type of thing, type mm-hmm. of guy. So, so that's on my father's side. But my father had the thing is that he worked hard always. As long as I remember... My father had no, you know, while he was a former, very free-spirited character, when he became a father, he was family-oriented, he put a suit and a tie and shut the fuck up in front of very wealthy people and just had a sense of service. And out of that, provided a lot for us and for our family. He worked crazy hours being on duty on the call. I remember seeing, having one of the first pager in France, he was working for a rich uh, Saudi and it was like part of the contract was you are on, when you work for Saudi, you are on demand 24 hours a day, right? Also, his mother, my, my grandma, and the whole family in France were like, didn't necessarily have degrees and masters, but somehow built incredible businesses in manufacturing or in retail and had a very good lifestyle. But they all worked six days a week. Mm-hmm. And they have a sense of making second, like my aunt will tell me. The one thing that she feel about my generations is like that they don't have a sense of sacrifice for the long-term gain. So that was my father's side. On my mother's side, it's even more interesting. Often, very wild Amazon mixed uh, dark-skinned Brazilian woman that is fear- fearless. But I mean fearless. I've seen her with guns pointed at her, jumping on the on the throat of a guy without hesitation. I've seen her because of a bill not invoiced properly going up the headquarters, like driving us, putting us in the car and driving two hours and going one floor after another of a corporation all the way to the desk of the CEO at the end of the day, screaming at him to remove $20 of the bill of his electricity. Just like a very intense character and also an entrepreneur. You know, both of them have first person, but my mother, it's a picture, you're a mixed woman under the Brazilian dictatorship. And you run a business of hundreds of women and the first commercial cleaning company in her state. And she used to tell me when I was a kid always that, you know, uh, I can't work for someone else for too long. She said, you're on the same time than me. You will not be able to work for someone else for too long. Um, so, so how much do you think of your personality comes from your mother and father? It sounds like there's a bit of both. There's really a lot of both. And you know what's funny is when I thought I was very different from my mother, over time you realize, well, there's a reason why sometimes I don't get along with her. We're very similar. It's like, you know, two dogs in front of each other. <laughs> it's like sometimes they're grown. But, and I think there's really a lot of both. But I definitely think I take a lot more from my dad. And people will say I even sound like him sometimes. My father, I think, is a bit more mild-mannered and laid-back than I am. That's the big difference. I have a lot more of the fire of my mother and the, um, I would say the impetuous, like the impetuous attitude. Like people will joke that will just, you know, I'm the type of guy, everyone's sitting, everything is fine. And all of a sudden I stand up and say, we're going to do that. And it was like, whoa, calm down. What, what, what's the rush? What's the rush? And that's, I think, a lot more from my mother. Actually. So, I mean, look, you're, you're an individual that kind of thinks you can accomplish anything. When you have that kind of wild child mentality, that ADD, mm. it could go two ways. It could be very destructive or it could be the most the yeah. greatest gift that one can have. Yeah. What did your parents do right to harness that energy and you know, put you on the right path to success as opposed to failure? Yeah, so I don't, have, I don't have ADD at all, but I think what I have is extreme curiosity. 
it's funny, like, luckily my dad actually is, is passing by in town with me right now. And before this interview, asking him, before I was a teenager, what are the two to three things I used to do all the time? Because, you know, it's a good question, you know, uh, to ask yourself. So the thing is, they did, I'm not sure what they did. I don't think they, I think they handled the best they could at the time they could. I don't think they were necessarily causing, but I know one thing is sports. Like when you have a high intensity character, you know what they say? If you have a kid that has high energy, it, there's only two outcomes. You'll be very successful or you're going to end up in jail. Like someone yeah. that just doesn't sit on the sofa quiet, you better canalize those energies. So yeah. like they were concerned because at some point I started, you know, I would I also, I don't know what it is about me, but like I really sometimes doesn't give a shit about what people think. And that's like since I'm a very, okay, maybe because I was moved around a lot and I was always the outcast. Like, remember, I'm like, I was changed of five schools in seven years between the age of five and 12. Like, that's just not what everyone goes through. Mm-hmm. I was moved continents. Uh, I was put, you know, as a Brazilian young kid that didn't speak French, airdropped in Paris with a bunch of very conservative French people making fun of me. Two years, barely time to adapt. Then I was thrown in the middle of black people resentful of past colonialism of French people, and they think I'm a French white guy coming from France. And also then they hate me with more hate than I ever seen in my life at six years old, right? It's like always at people, I, I grew up being a human that didn't trust other humans. So think about the mindset that that shapes. It's, it's a lone wolf, very solitary, very mistrusting, very attest everything, and I don't turn my back on anyone mindset. How do you go from that? Because I mean, in business and building teams, you can't have that mentality, right? I mean, it's, it serves you well to survive, but how do you transition that lack of trust and that lone wolf mentality into building sustainable teams? Because you've done it effectively in your career. Yeah, I, mean, I dropped that a long time ago because well, mm-hmm. it, it started when I went to, as life evolved, decided, first of all, you know, my father made decisions to stay in the neighborhood and have certain jobs that put me in a more positive work in a more stable. Like I, I ended up staying 10 years in a stable environment in the west part of Paris with a lot of wealth around, a lot of people that have very inclusive behavior. Paris is such a melting pot of cultures and there's nothing better than being a student in Paris. I mean, it's just, you know, like you meet people from all over the world and in the, the university I was that did a lot to, if you want, remove the scars and make me comfortable with that. And, and also the benefit of collaboration. I was in a very, uh, how can I say, unorthodox university that applied principle of collaboration a lot more earlier on students than the traditional you sit down with a book and you know listen so by the interaction and the, the, those exchanges really fast i learned fast one thing i have as a, i always used to say that i'm very adaptive because in the early phase of my life i was thrown around so much so many times in many different situations that i'm very adaptive really fast when things like covid happen that's when my i you know and even in other jobs before, my bosses or my investors will say, when everyone loses their shit is in a crisis, that's when we see you calm. And when everything is fine, you're always unraveled. It's like <laughs> a, a, a complete opposite definition of what is my comfort levels. I'm very and you, good at And do you think that, uh, you know, you, you, were, you used the word outcast earlier. Yeah. And it's a word that I hear a lot from successful entrepreneurs that I've interviewed on this podcast. And I'm starting to get a... a, a uh, the feeling that this this outcast mentality has something to do with that entrepreneurial spirit. You talked about adaptability, and maybe that's the that, maybe that's the great transition from that outcast to entrepreneurship is is being able to be adaptable because you sure as hell have to be able to be adaptable 
when you're building a business from the ground up, because as, as we all know, you pivot about you know eight times before you get successful. I think is the, the, the most recent stat. You know, how much truth do you think there is to that 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 observation? I think it's everything because you while being an outcast, you teach yourself to make your own mind and own vision on some things. And when you look at some of the most interesting entrepreneurs that I admired, they always tell you why, when you ask them, why did you do that? It's because they had that incredible sense that they were uniquely positioned in the world that no one else but them could address that problem. That sense of being uniquely positioned of a unique insight that nobody else sees, that you become obsessed over it, and that you keep seeing every day, often results in those situations. And so I think it was, and I actually I was discussing not too long ago with a friend about this. He says, I'm worried as a father, so that because I try to create like such a safe and stable and give everything as much possible to my daughters, I'm actually hampering them mm. from seeking, you know, extraordinary unusual careers. Um, the Knowledge Society in Toronto nailed it when they said, TKS says, you don't achieve uh, unconventional success by following conventional path. So a conventional path always opens certain perspective, but it's, it's a hard one. But that being said, I can't dissociate the fact that, so there's a book, one of the books that shaped my vision on the world is called The Lucifer Effect. And Philippe Zimbardo was a guy behind the Stanford Prison Ex Experiment. He was a doctor in, in, in uh, psychiatry, I think, at Stanford University. He was called to witness at the Abu Ghraib trials when there was those American soldiers who put prisoners of war in those awful positions with electricity. And in that book, it teaches you that there is a mechanism to create evil people. And the majority of people are, are fallible to it. You can turn people that are normal, well-mannered into total monsters. And you look, he studied horrible situations of conflicts around the world. And he cracked what I called the, he called the Lucifer effect. And there's a very interesting thing that he said. He said there's some people that naturally of our circumstances grow apart from society. And in the Stanford Prison Experiment, there's one guy that did not lower his ethical and sense of integrity and compassion towards other humans. It was the poorest guy in the, in the group that didn't have enough money for housing and slept in his car at night and took showers in the, the gym of Stanford. Why is that guy, how do you put yourself in the shoes of that guy that doesn't feel he belongs, that he's so poor that he sleeps in, the, in, in, the, in that car every day, he grows with a certain sense of differentiation from the others, that when everyone loses their shit and starts behaving in a very horrific way, he keeps that distance, that self-introspective way, and that sense of self. Another book I read about, and I think there's something about when you talk of the soul of a human, that sense of looking at yourself as someone sitting in the body of the person thinking it. So differentiating yourself from your emotion and your thinking patterns and observing yourself as a third person. When you are not cast, this is imposed on you. You don't have to do the exercise. The moment I walked in every classroom, everywhere I went, someone tried to beat me up, someone tried to steal something from me, or said that I'm something I'm not. Often people will put negative intent on me that I did not, like, no, I mean, like, for example, the thing of arriving being a white kid at seven years old that had a mother mixed that was subdued to discrimination, and all of a sudden they were treating me as if I was a racist. It was like a total mind. How do you, at seven years old, how do you, you don't process that. It was only when I was in my 20s that I understood the frustration, the anger it caused me of unfairness and things like that. So when you have a brain that has been constantly beat up at shaping your own perspective on things, you don't believe the news. You don't believe anything you tell you. You are forcing yourself at seeking the truth 
as in a version that you can rely on consistently. And I think when I, I was in starting MindBridge, actually, there's a guy called Brad Feld who passed by in town. He wrote a book called uh, Building Startup Communities, and he's a very successful investor. And then we were sitting at a beer, and there was like five other people. And he turned to me after a while and says, keep doing that. I was like, doing what? He said, there's not one thing I said tonight that you didn't challenge. And I didn't see it as challenging. I was just keep asking questions. And so when actually I ask, you know, if you ask like, what are the things that shape the success? People used to say as a kid, I was extremely difficult because I was persistent at all times. I was persistent at all time and curious. So like I wouldn't, my teachers, and by the way, my, like uh, I have a co-founder that is the same way. When the teachers will tell me Rome was founded by blah, blah, blah. I'm like, how do you know? <laughs> Imagine you have a kid of eight years old. You tell him like the, the you know, the, the, the earth is wrong. It's like, how do you know? Did you walk around it? That's the questions I used to ask I, 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 like, all the time. So, so you, you believe that all these skill sets you know, are really important in making you who you are. And you mentioned that you're, you're concerned that you're maybe preventing your children from going through the struggles that you went through. I think about that stuff all the time. It's conversations that I've had a lot with people. How do you possibly try and bridge that gap and allow them to, you know, not be quote unquote coddled too much with still the desire to take care of your children like we all have? Yeah, well, you don't because it's not about you. It's about them. And what is meant for them will be. What is meant for them will be. But, but don't you think that you have a, a responsibility to rear them the, the right way, right? I mean, sure. the, the question sure. is, what is the right way? Sure, but why? So I'll give you, ask you a question. How come there's so many very religious people that are rude? How come there's so many religious wars? It doesn't matter what you said to your kids and share the things you've learned. They can misinterpret and they will not understand the words. I remember reading a book called Competitive Strategy by Michael Porter from 1986 in business schools in 2002, right? I read the book, I read the words, I had a good grade at the exam, and then I reread it after starting my first company. And I was like, oh shit, that's what it meant. It's not because you will do your best. If they don't experience it themselves, sometimes they won't be able to relate and interpret the meaning of what you share with them. So there's some things you can't do. The same way I always say, how come some very religious people are very rude? They read texts of love and compassion and all that, and then they go pick up a gun and shoot their neighbor. Like, <laughs> you know, it's like, that's what the human experience is about. So if you think about, you know, the purpose of humans on planet Earth is like, I think part of it is also experience and shaping their own destiny in their own turn. So I don't stress over, I'm actually happy that my daughters will not be exposed to some shit I've been exposed that have made me extremely much more of a critical thinker in times of crisis. I, I don't want to wish them that, you know, I, but what I think where we can be is when they go into situations and they ask you, you know, what is there there? You have to give them tools to process information faster than you were able to. Like, for example, I discovered, you know, like you, I like to talk a lot. Of one of my kids is very communicative. And the re regularly, the teacher says that you have to let other people speak. Regularly, the teacher says, that's a great story, but we're not going to talk about it now. And she gets frustrated. And you have to explain her why it's normal that, you know, out of 30 kids, she's not going to take a third of the speaking spot, but one thirtieth is more fair. And so that she has to just pick what she wants to talk about the most, but she can't just... But then you say, you know, you don't create extraordinary life by being angry. So, you know, there's, there's I, that as well. I, and I also I tell her the same thing. When the teacher tries to make her feel bad for being who she is, I tell her, look, 
fuck it. <laughs> like you, you can't go against who you are. I tell her that the same way, but you just have to learn how to. And that's one of the things that, you know, my, my father did and repeated me all the time. Balance. You yeah. have to learn that balance. Like it's the same thing. Like it was the hardest lesson in my life to learn that my intensity can't be on all the time. Like I, I would turn off people like my, like some investors say some thing that we love about you. You arrive in the pitch room. There was five other startups. You arrive, you pitch. I forgot the other five startups. Like you just suck the energy out of the air. So there's times and place to use your superpower. Like if the hawk is the hawk all the time, he can't get a girlfriend, right? <laughs> it's like it's the same thing. It's like you have to, you know. I mean, except if it's a hawk girlfriend too. But like most <laughs> of the time, the hawk is not the hawk all the time, right? Like, on the contrary, the girlfriend comes down, which is a very, I think, sexist vision that the woman comes or the guy, whatever. But like it's uh, that's what it is. But I think these qualities of people look me. And I just asked the question, but I was like, so it's like persistent, curious. And then when I decided to do something, I put a focus that is fanatical. But first I have to decide on my own. And that was, that was an average student my whole studying life. And one teacher used to give me such a hard time because there was only two exams in a year in France. And the grading system is out of 20. It's not like A, B, C, D. And it's not like here where everyone is a winner more or less. Over there is basically 20 is the best grade and nobody gets it usually. <laughs> They make a point for you to not be the best. It's very different. And then the passing mark is at 10. And then you have 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 20. And usually at the beginning of the year, the first exam is easier. So people learn and think. And then the hard exam is at the end. And then I will get at the first exam, 2 out of 20 or 5 out of 20, which is really bad. And then I will get 15 or 16 out of the second exam. So the teachers knew I had potential and I was not using it. But I was not interested enough. Mm-hmm. So I would just pass the mark just to pass by. And that thing of self-determination, I think, is something that we, there's two things we don't teach kids enough. Grit. Like, I fundamentally believe, I'm raising a book right now, How to Raise Successful People, by someone that has come up with a concept called TRIC, which is trust, uh, I think, resilience, collaboration, and whatever, respect, and respect and, and, and communication and, and, and resilience. And, and she talks about that thing, which is grit is a teachable skill. And that's something I never heard before. And when you think about how important grit is in your life, not to give up on your spouse too fast just because you're having some marriage issue, right? Not to give up on that project. Like this concept, think about the Kindle. I mean, Jeff Bezos, I was um, uh, listening to a podcast not too long ago. Everyone told Jeff Bezos not to do the Kindle. Like everyone. So what he did, he literally to the guy in charge of his number one earning revenue, fired him and said, now you have to make this a success. And like poured everything in it. That, that greed, that mindset, right, is really important. And I've seen it in many fields. That doctor that would study, like for example, Paul Lamb from Spartan Bioscience that spent 16 years scrappingly building the world's first cube DNA tester. And when COVID hits, all of a sudden, the government of Canada and the prime minister talks about him. How many people would have given up after 50? I mean, dude, you and me would have given up in year four of having no revenue, nothing much going on. He stick to it for 15 years, right? Grit is one hell of a important characteristic. But the one thing that I want to talk about, I mean, you have have incredible vision and, and probably like me, I have vision all the time for a multitude of different things. Some you move forward with, some you don't. Yeah. How do you select, like, how, how do you be honest with yourself about the right visions and the wrong visions? Because sometimes visions, 
can steer you in the, in the wrong direction because it's like, oh, I wish the world was like this, but sometimes it's not possible. One thing I learned recently, I started like doing studying theology because I find it's there's if people have been writing about human behavior for thousands of years, there's something to learn there. Yeah. And I've also had a coach, and they pointed at me. A lot of people think I'm arrogant. I'm very confident guy, and this is the biggest mistake because actually I'm not that arrogant. I'm actually humble enough to know that I don't know what is a good or bad idea. I just know that I need to try that. Like at the end of the day, when rubber hits the road, you know if something is spinning and moving forward or not. So that's the reality. It's like, but, but, but then how do you know when to give up? If you say, I'm going to try it, you got to be able to move on to the next thing quickly. Well, that's where low ego really matters, right? Why do people hold on stock that keeps on falling and then they make all their loss is ego. Yeah. You like, accept you fucked up. Accept is not that very interesting. You fail. Fail fast. I'm not reinventing anything you heard. People talk about it. Fail fast, right? That being said, what is the failing fast? You need to be, I think the, it's a lot also, you know, when they say, um, there's that book that talk about that guy that came from the future. He said he came from the future and he keeps saying, this is next week what's going to happen. I don't know if you read that book. And then no. basically, his whole life, he said, next week, this is going to happen. And it happened. And then it happened. And then it happened. And all of a sudden, he becomes president of the world type of thing. And then he died and people asked, so what was the secret for you to always knew? He said, I didn't know, but you guys believed in you and had the behavior that made things happen. So it's the same thing here. There's a portion of self-induced, you know, entrepreneurs sometimes have that self-induced ignorance that make them take a beating and beating and beating. And then something happened out of that. It's not that it was going to happen. It was not a good idea, but somebody turned it into a good idea because they just didn't give up and push forward with it. I, I, I was just talking about manifestation with someone else and how you manifest things into reality. How much do you believe in, in, in that ideology about manifestation? Again, I'm not inventing anything new. There's a book called The Three Laws of Performance who's proven it that it does happen. So The Three Laws of Performance, which is a bestseller, and one of the laws is that words are reality. The way you talk in society, look, when, and there's another book that hints on that. Actually, I have it here. Uh, you know, Homo Deus from uh, Yuval Noah Hariri, everyone knows that. He talks about, he, he barely scratched the surface of that very powerful concept of language. So my, I, it just so happened that my mother was an orphan and she's a huge fan of candomblé, which is a form of voodoo in Brazil. And so if you think in witchcraft, if you've ever been exposed to witchcraft, there's one thing to tell you, it's called spelling words because it spells. Mm -hmm. Spelling is because it spells. So if you come a morning and you turn to your wife and you say, what a beautiful day today. Wow, your hair looks lovely. Did you buy those shoes on sales? How do you think she feels at the first thing you say? Yeah. And if you turn her, she's like, wow, there's more clouds than I thought today. It's the same sky, by the way. There's more clouds than I thought today. Are you okay today? Is this the same shoes that you wore the last week? How do you think she feels? So this is a simplistic way to say it. But when you're in business or politicians, words totally can shape reality. Absolutely. The amount of hate that we see coming out online and in the U.S. right now, if people say, oh, they were there before, he just uncovered them. No, you create hate. And the Lucifer effect talks about that. Those things get created, right? I don't believe in any witchcraft. I don't think it's a good thing. But in the meantime, there's some interesting things to be said about people. You know, the, the Mahabu in, 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 in Africa, the people that used to be the storytellers of Europe that would walk around in villages and says, or for example, what Yuval Noah here used to talk about that, 
the God says has built a dam to protect us from the floods. Well, it's not the God said, it's the thousands of slaves that died building those dams that did it. But in the meantime, they were giving offerings to Seth who protected Egypt from the flood and built that dam. No, the humans built that dam for Seth, and, but the, the words at the time they were used is that you need to do that for the God, right? So we were more simplistic humans. Now we are much more sophisticated, but the same thing holds. If you look at Bernie Madoff, you know, now the story came out a lot more, and I think I can point you to much more interesting accounts and FBI transcripts from things that were discovered than what they put in the Netflix series. But one thing that he did is incredible is the use of reverse psychology all the time. People who shop, he'll be, he'll be how did he recruit? You will have one guy that believes in him and put money already, so someone that is incentivized to believe in the whole thing, and he will have him invite a friend, and he will come for dinner, and he spend the whole dinner talking about modalities. And then at the end, the, the guy that wants to invest and be part of the fund will come and say, "Okay, but like, great, I want to be in, but like, what are your methods? Which methodology? What quants are you using?" He start asking simple, the most simplest question as to why, what's the thesis to invest there and things. And then Madoff will go quiet, put his plate down, and turn to the guy that brought him in. And said, you know, I don't discuss my methods. So, well, it's okay. I hope you gentlemen have a good evening, but uh, I'm just not here for being interrogated. And he would just make the guy feel so bad mm. for having asked him that question and just go quiet that the other person will start begging that doesn't want to be out, right? It's the whole thing of not being well, I mean, so, so, Sociopaths have been proven to be the most manipulative people on, on earth. So it's the same thing in a positive way. I remember before being part of... Um, MindBridge and co-founding it. And I did a short start at a company called Solink, who just raised a Series B of $20 million. And I remember arriving, they were in a soul-searching moment. Every startup goes through that, right? There was no CEO, there was no leadership, there was no structure, people were quitting left and right, no sales for three quarter. And it was a terrible morale. And I remember arriving morning, I said, I'm fed up with that. So I just put everyone in the room and I said, okay, it's going to be very simple. There's a big guy called Terry Matthews with a lot of real estate behind. He's not going to go anywhere and he's giving you a check for longer you guys deserve. <laughs> it's just like, so right now it's very simple. How much do you want to succeed? And that question shocked everyone in the room that asked it. But I knew what I was doing when I asked that. They had no sense that they could succeed. succeed. Mm-hmm. So by removing the failure out of the equation and just making their brain ask themselves, how much do you want to succeed? Then I could start creating a winning culture. And then within a quarter, a couple of weeks, we closed the largest deal they've ever closed, right? And so the company back on track on the use case that worked. But words are so powerful, so powerful. Like for example, a couple of hours ago, I was on a call with my team. I said, I'm going to crucify that guy. I took a sword out. And I said, I'm going to go to battle with a competitor. I'm going to speak in front of the panel with him. I said, I'm going to absolutely go there for the kill. And like, what does that mean? That means I want you guys to be focused on being aggressive on that, on that special initiative. Don't come to say we're going to be politically correct like us Canadians do. I'm not doing that. I'm not going to do that, right? Yeah. I set the expectations with my words, right? So a, a huge part of, of what you've discussed is reframing questions <laughs> the right way and asking the right questions. And I think a huge amount of that comes from, you've mentioned this word probably more than others in this whole uh, discussion is curiosity. I know why curiosity is so important and, and I think that most people do, but what could people do if, if, they, if they're not naturally the way you are and the way I am and that we're extroverts and we feel comfortable, what are some of the tools that they should be using to use curiosity in, in as best a way as possible? 
But the reason, but let me ask you a question first. Why does it matter for you, for individuals to succeed? Why does it matter for, for me? Yeah, like, others so, what is, like what is the definition of success, right? It comes back down to that. Well, yeah, the def- I think the definition of success is to be the best version of yourself and be happy with, 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 with what you've achieved and reach your goals exactly. and be fulfilled. So there's tons, millions of people that don't need to be that curious, live happy lives, yeah. incredible contributor to society. Leave, leave the curiosity for the tortured ones. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, so for, I give you an example, an example of that. There's a, an, a, I'm not going to repeat the joke because it's so politically incorrect. Uh, but there was that artist, comedian in France called Coluche, who said, God created every human equal. And then he said something I'm not going to repeat, but the whole point was like, for some humans, it's going to be harder from others. Based on, like, if, you, if, you, if I want to become a basketball player, you know what? I don't have, that have, a, re- I don't have a reach and I don't, don't jump that high. It's not going to be that easy for me. So, so let's talk nature-nurture, because as you know, it's something that I, I, I'm obsessed with. I mean, yeah. what's your viewpoints on the nature-nurture dynamic and which one plays a bigger role? I honestly have not spent any much of my time towards that because I think... <laughs> no, but, but you, just, you just spoke about it. You said you can't yeah. be a basketball player because your reach isn't that of LeBron James. Yeah, I, I see, agree. Yeah. I mean, you also spoke about your superpower, right? Like the reason you call it your superpower is because you have a natural gift. My viewpoint is that we are very much pre-programmed to some degree, right? I mean, I think it's 80% yeah. pre-programming, but other people think it's less. At first, I'm, I'm being very egoistic, egocentric, in the sense that it's so hard for me. I'm obsessed with, I don't know. Like, I think that I'm a pretty good public speaker. I've been around the world. I won the world's largest fintech competition in the world. So those things have proven to me that my thought was validated, that I'm pretty good at pitching in front of a crowd of thousands of people. But all the way leading to certain external validation thing, I never assumed that I really was that good at it or not. I just seeked, I searched to gain self-awareness on those topics. And before shipping up an opinion on the whole humanity on that, I haven't shipped up an opinion definitive of me. I know that there's some things that if I knew earlier in my life, I would have had less hardship. So I guess I'm a very lazy person, which I seek the path of least resistance for my life, right? So in my definition of my debate of nature versus nurture, nature, I've had so many external events that, sh- that beat me up in the sense of character shaping that I don't have clarity as to really if it's a nature versus nurture thing. I'll give you an example of that. People know me as a very extrovert guy. I live my life until COVID with a two suitcase ready to jump at any time on the plane. So when COVID hit, I was very concerned that I'd be one of those people that lose my shit over not having that much social interaction. Most people in the comp- in, in my teams were thought like, so I was going to have a hard time not jumping on a plane and do conferences and meeting people all the time. And then I thrived on the COVID to the point that now people tell me, so you need to do more social stuff. And then I started re- remembering that you know, as a kid, actually, I enjoyed having time for thinking by myself a lot more. But I just learned how to cope not having that time. Like, it's a very, like, I don't think, I think I'm still young and still um, not self-aware enough that I haven't shaped that opinion for myself first to be able even to think about it from another perspective. I just know that it exists. I just know that it's a debate, right? I just know that there's a lot of things on the nurture side and a lot of things on the nature thing. But I do think that people need to gain self-awareness in both situations. 
That's what I think. Look, I, I think I've had this discussion with you. I, I, I believe that self-awareness is the key that unlocks potential. Because if you don't know what you're good at and you don't know what you're bad at, you can't double down your strengths and ignore your weaknesses. Yeah. And also there's, there's something also about the question, nature versus nature, bring the whole question about can people fundamentally change? And this is where I've had all proof points that they can't, and yet I'm still a hopeful romantic believing that they can, right? I went through a very difficult uh, separation with the mother of my children, and everyone told me that this person will not change, and she's proven not to do things that she's done before that were hurtful for others. And I still believe today, despite everything, that I still believe that she can and will change. Maybe I'm just a hopeful, optimistic... Eternal optimist, exactly. But I still do believe that people, over time, even if it takes 50 years for some people, that people eventually do change. And yeah, okay, I've been given a thousand reasons, 999 reasons to be not uh, very faithful. Remember, you're talking to a guy that was, you know, subject to bullying, aggressions, discrimination, and all the things you can think of most of my two-thirds of my life and and still I find that one case where humans turn out to be positive and I believe in that I choose to be a hyper optimistic in life because otherwise it's depressing when you look at the history of humans it's not very pretty you know I mean speaking about the judgment of others and you know kind of character assessments a huge amount of of, of angel investing is selecting the winners from the losers right and and, and I don't mean that in terms of ideas. I really mean that in terms of the actual individuals. Yeah. What, what are some of the things that you've learned along the way in your successful investments versus less successful investments and other some commonalities that you've kind of established in your own mind when you're selecting for a winner? You know what? That the blame is on me. Like, they, you know, like, I'm always shocked as to how there's that inside voice when you meet someone that tells you whether you can trust that person or not. And then you rationalization kicks in and then you trust them and then just fucking knew it. You know, it's like, <laughs> and then this other time where you're like, I think this guy's, this girl is going to be a huge success, but you're like, and then everyone tells you the reasons why not. And you're like, ah, oh, you feel like you're going to look like a fool because of ego. So you don't invest. And then your girl was right. I find that what's very interesting is that somehow if, I, and this is something now I don't have time because I have business to drive. I have teams that rely on me. I can't go on a philosophical trip and yoga retreat and all of that. But if one day someone finds like a retreat that it heightens my sense of listening to that inside voice, I'd like to, because like it always, I got always burned. And the best investments I've done were when I had almost no time to think and that I had to, to go with that instinct yeah. And, and also in, 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 a, in a sense of no bias instinct, which is very different because we all have that bias. You know, we always like, oh, I know that guy is a friend of a friend, so I trust him by, you know, proxy. And then guess what? It skews your, your instincts, right? And so, 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 so on, to put you in the spot, what was the best investment you made? And did you think it was going to be a good investment at the time? Obviously, you think it's going to be a good one, but did you think it was going to be the winner that it turned out to be? The one right now that I'm so proud about is Kraken Robotics. Kenny, Kenny and his team, what they've done out of uh, the East Coast of, of Canada. I, as soon as this, I saw what they were doing, I was like, and then the stocks increased, I don't know, like 200%. It's up, I don't know, like today it's up 12%, 9%, 12%. Since they went IPO, it's up, like not IPO, but listed on the TSXV. 
it's up by 380% and since I invested in them, but like, and then as soon, and then remember like, like they were at a couple of millions of dollar revenue. They just signed a $34 million contract with the Danish Navy. And there was just something about not even the CEO, but like the whole ethos of the team and what they were doing and even the name. And there was just like an aura around that team. And then I just got obsessed and then I just couldn't, a lot of people tell me, I'm not sure what are you doing, blah, blah, blah. And it turned out to be exactly what I thought like a great Canadian success in the making. And I'm very proud of them. I never met them in person. Really? I never met them in person. Wow. The other one, you know what? Believing in myself. I mean, the, 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 the line of credit I took to start MindBridge, it was probably, in a. I went through a very dark phase of knee depression and not believing in myself again. And it was like uh, when I became a father, I was faced against myself on the whole question of how can you teach your kids certain behavior that you don't leave yourself. Mm-hmm. One of it is self-worth, right? I think this is one thing that, that believing yourself and, and having a self, a self-esteem was something that I, had to, that I had to rebuild after going through, uh, you know, very disappointing professional news. So, like, so I think like that I knew definitely the given, because I was an industry insider, I knew there was no doubt in my mind that it would make very quickly millions of dollars revenue. To, and it was a crazy risk when you have debt, two kids, and then you lost everything you had before. It's like, and then you have your new in a new country, so your reputation, the, the, the people don't know what you've done before. There was like a huge amount of pressure. And also, you know, having like, you know, a, a young family, a baby. Yeah. Like there was for, a, for, 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 those, for those who don't know what MindBridge does, because we haven't actually touched on it, maybe you can just give, that, give us the Coles notes of that business, because it is it's such an interesting business. Well, so MindBridge, you know, really changes the way financial data analysis is done, which was the world's first AI used in a central bank, in a payment facility, and in audits. The AI expert system of MindBridge is very good at spotting financial irregularities. The payment system in the financial statements of a company, by the way, you should be using it in every due diligence you do. Um, so if you look at what happened, I called the whole crisis that audit is going on. So when I founded MindBridge, I wrote a blog post on why MindBridge, when we found in my bridge, we said, I had that obsession that auditors don't know how to do audit anymore uh, just because of orthodoxy and that there's a house of card going on where all of a sudden stuff like wire card, like stuff like Enron that happened in the past, people thought was in the past. I said, like, nothing has changed. It's going to become worse. And AI is the fix. So, uh, and we were proven right. Wire card, Carillion, you know, all those scandals are happening around. Right now, the one I'm talking a lot about is Tesla because... You know, there was, there was, Wirecard was a big case, but Tesla, if you remove the credits, like they accounted all the credit, if green credits they got, and if you remove it, it shows that they never made quarter profit in the crucial moments where people, the stock picked back up. So if you look at the definition of creative accounting, right, there's a lot of short sellers right now that are saying that was fraud. So like, and again, there's no, there's no version of the- And a stock continues to go up. Yeah. And, in, and, and so even worse, what, what you see happening recently, which my bridge was, again, the first one to say something is to be done in that area. The regulators cited by the fraudsters in the case of Wirecard, which is insane. The Financial Times and the short server says Wirecard is a fraud. The issue is raised to the auditors. ENY goes after it and keeps putting the stamp on all the financial statements, not looking at the allegations. And then Bafin, the regulators in Germany, forbid short sellers 
and then even try to criminally prosecute the journalists of the Financial Times. So you have, what, what, the reason why we found in MindBridge is because what I was convinced of, and it's proven true, the structure of the industry is outdated. When you have the regulators and lawmakers endorsing and be a behavior of fraudsters, what does that tell you? How You're do you call trouble. that? You're in trouble, for sure. Yeah, so it's a house of cards, and I'm very worried because the next crisis is going to be coming from the tech sector with all the creative, you know, not gap reporting. Like, I give you a, a big topic internally at MyBridge, what we had is how do companies report churn? Like, right now, you know, Alteric's definition of churn is any customer that been using it that's paid us for more than a quarter. AppDynamics definition of customer is anyone that's been using a service and paying us for more than a year. So everyone has their own definition of churn. It's time that this industry grows up and has a standard because investors don't understand the subtlety of that, right? And yet you have large asset managers, like for example, a SoftBank that waives audit requirements sometimes on checks of $100 million plus. So if you think about what MindBridge was set itself to do, and it came again from my mistress of human, is to say, I don't trust humans to check the numbers of the books of a company anymore. I'm going to build an AI to do that. That's what mm-hmm. we do. Well, Solon, I, I promised you I would keep you within the hour. I could talk to you for the next three hours. <laughs> uh, but for those, those that want to continue following your journey, that want to continue seeing what you're up to, what's the best way that they can uh, keep track of you? Well, I'm definitely more active on LinkedIn. Uh, I don't accept everyone there. But like, I have a Twitter account, of course, and solonangel.com. But uh, if you want to follow what's going on with MindBridge, which is very interesting right now, go on mindbridge.com or mindbridge.ai. But all of the companies that I'm either advising or I've been involved with is listed on solonangel.com. We will create a link underneath this podcast. So Solon, once again, love your energy. This is a unique podcast for me because you can carry the energy. Uh, you know, sometimes <laughs> I feel like I have to carry the energy, but this, is a, this was a Solon show and I was appreciative for that. <laughs> uh, well, I was appreciative to talk to you. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. And you know I have, I'm very shy and I walk on it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> So until next time, thank you very much for listening to A Dealmaker's DNA. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed what you heard, rate us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time on A Dealmaker's DNA, where you can expect the unexpected.